Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Before I read the passage this morning, I'd like to uh, have a prayer for illumination that God would bring this word before us in all truth. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends upon our true understanding of your holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts, being free from worldly things, may hear and understand your holy word, and with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will cherish it, and live by it with all our hearts to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God's holy word, Philippians 4, beginning in verse 10. Let's hear. And please give your attention to its reading. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Certainly scoring touchdowns is not uh, on the top li- the list of top 1,000 or 100,000 things even in this world in terms of importance. There was a bit of a buzz this past week. There was a a quarterback who was coming back from injury and kind of gave a press conference as he's coming back from injury, actually spoke with uh, some pretty deep wisdom to some of these issues about contentment. He was given an opportunity to speak to some spiritual things, and, and what he basically said was, that, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have chosen this road that I have had to walk this season. It wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't what I planned for. But I took it as an opportunity to learn to trust God and learn to serve him better. And then he expanded on this quite a bit and basically said, this life isn't you know, all, all about prosperity and prospering and always being uh, given everything that you want. And he lifted up identity in Christ. We have to be uh, we have to have in our minds the importance of finding our identity in Christ. And uh, certainly was rejoicing with him over uh, his saying this. Uh, but I also had to laugh a little bit because I was thinking about how to bring all of this together. Very familiar passage and oft quoted verse, verse 13 of course. When I was growing up I had a poster on my wall and there was a baseball player who had autographed the poster, autographed his name, and underneath it put uh, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And maybe that that particular athlete uh, didn't mean it this way, but we do often hear uh, this verse quoted that Christ strengthens me to score touchdowns or he strengthens me to make great records with great music and to make lots of money. But we see from the context, and you clearly have seen this, you've heard it before, I'm sure, that we're talking about contentment, being content in any and every 
circumstance. And Paul's context here is particularly with material needs, having needs to have all of those material needs met. See, God may have ordained that you would be great at this thing or that on the earth, and that you may even become famous because of your ability to score touchdowns or whatever. But that's not for everyone, and God has ordained that all of his people would have it in their minds to seek after this strength that he gives to us, particularly when we diligently seek it. Contentment, it's been described as a rare jewel. It's been described as an art. It's been described as a treasure. One Puritan pastor says this, I have learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. This is a speech worthy to be engraved upon our hearts and to be written in letters of gold upon the crowns and diadems of princes. That's basically uh, our goal today as we look at this passage to convince ourselves of the value of this rare jewel. And if we are to learn this art and receive this rare jewel, we must give ourselves to the work of God in us that he might produce in us divine contentment in all things. It isn't automatic in each and every believer. It's not that God just zaps us and gives this to us. We need to seek it and we need to learn it. So let's uh, seek to learn it from him and receive it from him that we may glorify our Savior on the way of the cross. First, let's think about the context of chapter 4. I think a lot of things that are in Philippians and also in chapter 4 lead us on the way of understanding more about what Paul says here regarding contentment, of course, under the inspiration of the Spirit. We have been called to strive for unity in Christ, unity amongst the body of Christ. And if you think about it, Contentment is a big step on the way towards unity in Christ. We all need to be able to look at and accept the station in life that God has assigned to us. When people come together, what is natural for us to do? To look at what others have, to look at the situations in other people's lives, and to desire it if we do not have it that way and we want it that way. We have been uh, called to rejoice in the Lord always and to be anxious for nothing. Uh, And of course, we've talked about the the way in which uh, Paul calls us to lay aside worry. It's really a, a laying aside of worrying about the results of things. God brings about the results that he intends. He intends for us to be faithful to him, to serve him, and to trust him. And to trust that he is working all things together for good. But contentment must exist alongside some laying aside of worry. If you're constantly having, being filled with that sinful kind of worrying that Paul rebukes, then you're not going to be content. We have been called uh, to Think about and practice certain things to dwell on that which is good and true and beautiful and right. We talked about that last week, didn't we? And we know that our patterns of thought create patterns of action in our lives. How important it is what we think about, what we fill our minds with. What we fill our minds with becomes normal to us. And what becomes normal to us just becomes natural for us to do. That's the way God has made us, mind, body, and soul. 
And so by God's grace and by God's help, what do we do? We fill our minds with that which is good and true and beautiful. Particularly, we are to think about and to meditate on the glory of Christ, who is the perfection of all things, who is the truly righteous one, who is truly good, who is truly beautiful. Dwell on Jesus Christ and practice the things upon which you dwell. And that's exactly what Paul does here at the beginning of our passage when he says, I rejoiced in the Lord when you sent this help to me. This was a material gift, a monetary gift that the Philippians had sent to Paul for his ministry and it gave occasion for the very letter itself. So here we have Paul finally addressing uh, the, the, the occasion for the letter, that they helped him. They sent money. He was part of their missions fund. Now think about the opportunity that this creates for Paul, uh, a man who lives really mostly, or at least a lot of the time, off of the donations of others, the generous giving of others. What would he be tempted to do? What would we all be tempted to do? I know that I've, I've done this before. This is something I've done before. When someone shows Christian generosity to you, uh, sometimes this is, it's certainly good to be thankful and to be grateful and to express your gratitude, but sometimes we can be tempted to be so grateful and to shower them with praise so much that we're kind of hoping that they like the feeling that it gives them and they'll say, you know, I think I really ought to give that person money again down the road. I mean, we want to make them feel so good about it that they remember it and then maybe they'll give it to you again. That may not be a bad thing in all ways, but certainly done in that particular way is not great. So that's what makes Paul, what Paul does here so surprising. When someone gives you money, you generally uh, don't react by saying, thank you, but I know how to live without what you just gave me. Thank you, I appreciate it, but I want you to know that I know how to live without this. What's he doing? He has called them to think about Christ and to imitate him, really really as he imitates Christ. He's putting on display the dying to self and the living in Christ that he is calling them to. We live in a world where many who work in churches or in charities have gotten rich off of the donations of others. I was uh, just speaking to someone this past week who essentially wants nothing to do with the church because of bad experiences with cash-grabbing pastors. And that is a real problem. That is a real problem. And that causes us to consider what Paul does here. Because he is allowing the life of Christ to appear in him because what did Christ do? He laid aside riches, didn't he? He was rich, became poor, so that those who were poor uh, through the poverty of Christ might become rich. He's putting on display the kind of Christ-centered living that he calls them to live. That shows us uh, the seriousness that Paul had when he went to, to, to think about and to put into practice all that he preached. Another thing that we see when it comes to contentment is that this is something that is to be learned. It's something that must be learned. Paul does not say he's heard how to be content. Paul doesn't say there's some good ideas out there about achieving contentment. 
He doesn't say he wants to be content. He says that he has learned to be content. Thomas Watson, who wrote a book on contentment, says this. This word I have learned is a word which imports difficulty. It shows how hard the apostle came by contentment of the mind. It was not bred in his nature. He did not come naturally by it, but he had learned it. It cost him many a prayer and tear, and it was taught him by the Spirit. Good things, and this is a good thing if ever there was one, good things are hard to come by in this life. The spiritual things, good spiritual things that God calls us to for those who are in Christ and living by the Spirit. Our natures are opposed to this kind of thing. Our natures are drawn to that which, what, to that which, uh, which we see. Paul had been in all kinds of dangers and bad situations, beatings, tortures, sleepless nights outside. And this was something that had to be learned. And he learned it by God's grace. You know, it's true that things that we don't think are worth learning are things that we won't learn. We won't spend our time doing it, right? I can tell you as much as I want that Norwegian is the most glorious language on planet Earth. And to my knowledge, none of you are enrolled in Norwegian lessons, right? None of you have been convinced that this is something you ought to learn, even though it certainly is something you ought to learn. We don't think something is worth learning. We're not going to learn it. And so I put that before you this morning to say, do you sense how important divine contentment is? Do you sense uh, uh, how much God calls us to this? Do you see it as a rare jewel? Do you see it as something that's worthy of being engraved on your heart? Do you see it as something that's worthy of being engraved in gold on a prince's crown? Unless we see it that way, we will not strive to learn it by God's grace. Paul says, I learned it. James says that God gives wisdom liberally to to those who ask it. And likewise, he will give contentment to those who seek it in Christ. What is contentment and what is it not? What is contentment and what is it not? There's a good, we have, just reading this passage gives you a good sense of what it is, right? It's, it's fairly obvious what we're talking about. It's basically being satisfied with what you have. Not to be consumed with something like covetousness, or worry, or envy, or hopelessness, but to have a deep rest in your place in life. A definition might be something like this. A faith-filled satisfaction in Christ, and a joy-filled rest in the sovereign God who ordains each and every circumstance of your life. A faith-filled satisfaction in Christ and a rest-filled, a joy-filled rest in the sovereign God who ordains each and every circumstance of your life. The immediate context is material possessions. Paul has what he needs to attain what he needs or he doesn't. But it's also true, and the church has basically regarded this passage throughout the history of the church as also pertaining to things like trials, not just material need, not just the the, the money that's in your account currently. As if someone is content when they don't have a lot of money, but then they're not content when they're faced with trials, that's probably not going to be a content person. Sometimes the two often go together. 
Job. He was stripped of all of his riches and he lost his family. So contentment touches upon those trials as well, not just our material need, but it's something that endures through all the circumstances of our lives. And just like with joy, it's something that can exist alongside a number of emotions. Remember we said joy can exist alongside sorrow, pain, and grief. There's an unshakable joy in Christ. The same thing is contentment. Contentment is not something that exists to the exclusion of all negative feelings or sad feelings or frustrated feelings. A content Christian is not someone who is blind to his or her condition. When Job lost his children he did, and all of his possessions, he did not go out for a walk to enjoy the sunny day. He tore his clothes. He threw himself down in grief. Someone who has no feeling for the situation in which they find themselves is not a saint. That is a stoic. That's someone who has thrown away care that they might stop suffering. A content Christian is also not someone who never airs his or her grievances to God. I'll say it differently. If you are a content Christian, you still can air your grievances to God. And the scriptures give us the language to do that. Psalm 43, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? We can bring our complaints and our requests to God. A content Christian acts in a way that makes sense in the circumstances, whether that be grief or sadness or despair, questioning, and also is quite comfortable crying out to God for deliverance. But here are some things that can't exist alongside contentment. The first is murmuring, murmuring or complaining. That's an outward show of a lack of trust. Think of the Israelites in the wilderness. Why has God brought us here? Has he brought us here to die? Why didn't we stay in Egypt? I mean, imagine that the Israelites are in the wilderness and they're saying, we should have just remained slaves. We should have stayed back there because at least we knew that our next meal, uh, where our next meal was coming from. God is particularly displeased with complaining with our station in life because we are acting as if he does not do his job. We're calling into question that which he does. Remember, you know how frustrated you get when someone attacks what it is you do on a daily basis and says you're not capable of doing that. When we murmur and complain against God, we are acting as if he does not do his job, which he tells us what he does. He watches over us and he cares for his people. He says he is a heavenly father. Murmuring has no place alongside contentment. Secondly, hopelessness has no place alongside contentment. This is to distrust God's promises that he will be with us and that he has ordained all things for our good. If he truly has ordained all things for our good, he calls us to believe and to trust in that and to live according to that. And hopelessness can't go along with an accepting and a believing and a trusting in those promises. Murmuring, hopelessness, and then helplessness. 
Helplessness. Helplessness doesn't exist alongside contentment because that distrusts God's providence and his blessing to give you what you need. All things for faith and life he gives to you and he gives it by the spirit and he gives it through Christ who intercedes at the father's right hand to furnish you with exactly what you need to serve him each and every day in each and every circumstance. It's a faith-filled satisfaction in Christ and a joy-filled rest in our sovereign God. It's something internal. You think of a content Christian as like a a cedar tree internally that that is just a, a strong and solid tree that doesn't move. But outwardly, There is this ability to bend with the circumstances and and still have and show forth this divine contentment. A tree on the inside and like a a beautiful flag on the outside. Usually when you use the illustration of something blown in the wind spiritually, it's something bad. But here you can think about it as something good. Whichever way the spirit is blowing, you're still going to be uh, showing forth and displaying a beautiful life of contentment. It's something internal and it's something habitual. If you're content in one situation when you have all things, but then you're not when it's taken away, you're not content. If you're content for one day, but then not the next day, that is not biblical contentment. It endures. There are some ideas of what it is and what it is not. And so here, then finally, we get to what Paul says is the secret or the mystery of divine contentment. Just two things here in our remaining time. It is in Christ who strengthens me. We'll kind of take that in two pieces. Contentment is in Christ who strengthens me. Paul had learned by experience and by God's grace to see the matchless glory of God in Christ that transcends All things. He had learned by God's grace to see the matchless glory of God in Christ that transcends all things. Think about chapter 3. All things are lost compared to knowing Christ. We hear that a lot, but how often do we meditate on it? All things. All things are lost compared to knowing Christ. Even those things which may be good in this life, which God gives to us, compared to Christ, it is loss. Chapter 4, God gives you joy in all circumstances, unshakable joy. Chapter 1, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The point is that Paul is putting all of this on display to show to us that truly Christ is to be the treasure of our souls. We're to have that unshakable joy. And when we have that view of the glory of God in Christ growing and increasing, by God's grace we can be furnished with that contentment. And as I've said before, it all centers around that Christ hymn of chapter 2. That God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. In other words, the glory of Christ transcends all things. So your joy in Christ can transcend all things when you rightly estimate his worth. And when you see how worthy he is. That is to become our ultimate reality. Go back to James again. Let the rich boast in his humiliation. Let the poor boast 
in his exaltation. In other words, if you're rich, if God gives you all the things that you need in this life, you are to go out of your way to make it known that Jesus is your Lord, and though the world hates him, you are willing to stand with him in the midst of the possession of your riches, and you're willing to lay it all in the line for Christ. If you're poor, don't let your poverty blind you from the fact that you have been given imperishable and untold and unsearchable riches in Christ. Contentment comes in Christ. In other words, in seeing the glory of Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. How much are we living according to that conviction? We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. You see, uh, the riches and what happens in uh, celebrity culture in our world and the kind of curse that, it, that that is. And we ought to say, we who are wise, who would want that? Who would want that? Hebrews chapter 13. Your conduct must be free from the love of money and you must be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you and I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper and I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Notice in Hebrews chapter 13, as you seek uh, contentment in Christ, that first it is our duty. God commands this. You must be content with what you have. It's a commandment. Secondly, it rests on God's promise. I will never forsake you. All things will work for your good. If you want, if you are seeking contentment in God and in Christ, you need to remind yourself that you are to rest on the promises of God. It's not your own ability to achieve contentment. You have no ability to achieve contentment, but you seek it in Christ and in the promises of Christ, and by God's grace, he gives it to you. And that leads us to our last thing. It flourishes in God's presence. It rests on God's promise and it flourishes in God's presence. How do we know about the presence of God in our lives? How do we know that he never leaves us? How do we know that he is always with us? By the Spirit. Because in Christ he has given us the Spirit. And the Spirit carries with him the seed of all graces. And those who are in Christ and have the Spirit know this work of the Spirit's banishing of all of our sin. Now, we're never going to achieve perfection in this life. But for those who have the Spirit, if doubt, worry, lack of contentment, if all of those things are sinful, we are to trust that as God furnishes us with his Spirit, fills us with his Spirit, the Spirit is going to be working against those sins of the flesh subduing sin, drawing us to himself. And so we trust the work of God in those ways to fill us with this rare jewel. Because it comes in Christ who strengthens me by his spirit. When I have plenty, it is nothing compared to Christ and the glory of knowing him and seeing him. When I am in need, I still have Christ. When I lose all things in whatever circumstance I find myself, the King of kings and the Lord of lords still loves me and lived for me 
and died for me and continues reigning and ruling and living and interceding for me. Let us pray then, beloved, that God would give us this divine contentment. God often works in these ways. He is sovereign and he works through means. He calls us to seek this rare gift and to seek it in him and to confess our own ability to produce it. He wants our trust and he wants us to trust him and trust his promises. Therefore, we show it by praying that he would shed his spirit upon us and strengthen us with this rare jewel. And that way we may show this universal, gospel-centered, Christ-exalting obedience and trust in all circumstances. Horatio Spafford was a, a Presbyterian from Chicago, faithful follower of Christ. He had invested in real estate on Lakeshore Drive. He became extremely wealthy and lost a, a good bit of his fortune in the Chicago fire of 1871. Shortly after this fire, his son died. In a desire to take a break from the stress and sorrow of all this, he planned a European vacation for himself and his family, his wife and four daughters. There was a last-minute hang-up. He had to remain back in Chicago while his family set off for Europe. He was going to leave a few days later and join them. But the boat that was carrying his wife and four daughters was struck and sunk by another boat. Only his wife survived. He left America to join his wife in their despair, and as he was on the boat, he penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And what is it rooted in? His joy in that song, what is, what is it rooted in? My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And to what is it oriented? It's centered on the cross, but it's pointing towards something, isn't it? And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. It's rooted in Christ, in the glory of Christ, centered on the cross, the forgiveness that we have there, and it leads to the resurrection. And that is the kind of mindset set upon the glory of Christ. As we seek the Lord, he can grant us this rare jewel of divine contentment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would give us a greater measure of your spirit to trust your promises, to rest on your promises, and to uh, to seek that which you give to us, uh, that you might glorify yourself through us, and that as we go through this world, uh, content, whatever lot we see, uh, that you would uh, be pleased to glorify yourself through us. Furnish us with all of these things, by your Spirit and in Christ's name. Amen.